Hi, you guys. Today, we are ending uh, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is known as the Beatitudes. We are on the eighth of eight Beatitudes, and we've been exploring this set of scriptures together over the course of the summer. And if you're visiting with us today, or maybe you just kind of forgot some of the stuff, um, let me just give us a little bit of a recap so that we can kind of all get on the same page as we get to this eighth beatitude. I always say, or I try to, hopefully this sounds familiar if you've heard me preach before, that it's important um, to, when preaching particular passages, uh, to frame them in their literary cultural and historical context so that we don't take them out of context and make them say whatever we want, right? And one of the things I've been trying to remind myself and us of is, um, is that Jesus, when he's giving the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he's not doing it like in a lecture hall, like a university professor in isolation, and he's also not doing it in a synagogue, like he's not doing what I'm doing. He's not giving a sermon to a little group of people who are already there already following him. No one's paid tuition to hear what Jesus has to say. Jesus is speaking to a group of people, a crowd of people, who have been told that they don't measure up uh, in the powers that be. They don't measure up against the Roman Empire. They don't measure up in status to the wealthy among them. They don't measure up in holiness as holiness was defined by their religious leaders. They are a group of people who are trying to eke out a living but aren't necessarily thriving in life. And then here comes this man named Jesus who does things that only God in Scripture was able to do and says things that only God in Scripture should be able to say. They follow Jesus out into the wilderness and he ascends up a mountaintop, a lot like a mountaintop where where Moses received the law, only in this scenario, Jesus goes on a mountaintop and begins to expound on the law that Moses was given. And he's in the company now of people who have been enslaved by sin and by circumstance and oppressive powers Jesus, like Moses, but more powerful, more authoritative, those with ears to hear, let them hear. And Jesus starts off with shocking but wonderful news. See, most of their religious teachers, had they gone to hear them talk, would be saying things to encourage them to live better lives, to have better behavior, to do more religious things. These are not bad goals, but they're not the place to start for people who are already screwed up and hard on themselves and feeling like they don't actually fit. And they've come to believe, maybe, that they're in the situation that they're in, oppressed and poor and diseased, this is the type of crowd we have, they've come to a place where they may be believing that they're in that low spot because God is mad at them. But this Jesus, he's amazing. And when he speaks, it's like he carries more weight than their teachers, more authority even than their best teachers, it's almost terrifying you get the sense when Jesus is talking because it's such good news, but it's like, wow, 
Who is this man which speaks with such authority? It's almost like a holy fear. You can feel the buzz in the stories in the crowd. When he talks to you, it's the type of thing where uh, you sit up a little bit straighter and you pay a little bit closer attention. And at the same time, in this weird paradox, there's, there's a sense of warmth about him. He doesn't speak past you and over your head like some of the Bible scholars would. And he doesn't speak at you like a fiery preacher might. Instead, he, see, he says things like, flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Flourishing are the humble meek, for they, not them, shall inherit the earth. And he talks about righteousness and mercy and purity of heart and peace. And it just seems to be getting better with each beatitude and better and better. And now that we're at the eighth beatitude, we're ready for the crescendo. What is the best news to come? And he says, flourishing are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. (laughs) Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The first seven Beatitudes are such good news, and Jesus has been so encouraging. And then this paradox, at best, Or even worse, an insulting statement about being blessed if you're persecuted? Being blessed if you're rotting in jail over something you didn't do? How is that good news? Well, let's take a closer look at the passage, as you knew I was going to do. First of all, just an observation. This is the only beatitude of the eight beatitudes that's in two parts. One might say there's almost two audiences in play here. The first part is just like the other seven Beatitudes. It is in the third person, right? So blessed are those, blessed are they. That is the third person plural, English freaks out there. All right, it is a general statement about a general group of people, kind of like a universal truth. Flourishing are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, there you go. It's a statement, it's a truth. In other words, if you've ever been ostracized, penalized, arrested, marginalized, or passed over by the powers that be because you were pursuing right relatedness with other people, well, what Jesus is saying is that your persecution is not the end of the story. Rejection and injustice doesn't have the last word. In fact, Jesus says, count yourself as one who is flourishing not because you're being persecuted, but because the kingdom of heaven belongs to people like that. People who are seeking right relatedness with other people. One thinks maybe in modern days of, um, of a person who is arrested in a border town for leaving water out to a migrant. Okay, this happened last year. Or one thinks maybe in the business world of a salesperson who's passed over for promotion because they refuse to play the inter-office games of one-upping each other and talking bad about colleagues or lying to potential clients just to get another sale. 
That's practicing right relatedness. There's a cost to that in the world. And the flow of the logic is this. You admit your poverty of spirit, and it's your humility that is the entrance point to following Jesus. And then he begins to develop your character. Now, don't even need to raise your hand, but if you can say, I cannot save myself, I don't have all the answers to save myself in the world, that's poverty of spirit, okay? If you can start there and say, Jesus, I need you, I need your help, now watch what happens. You begin to study the life of Jesus in the Gospels, aided with the power of the Spirit, right? And then he begins to rub off on you. And it changes the way you begin to see the world. And you begin to mourn, second beatitude, over the things that break Jesus' heart. And then you begin to give up the obsession of making a name for yourself. You become humble and meek, like the third beatitude. Um, You begin to think of your own pleasure is not the most important thing in the world. And then you begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness, the righteousness of God, the fourth beatitude. You grow in mercy for others. Uh, the, the, the more you come to realize that you need mercy and that you're the recipient of mercy, the more you have mercy on other people. You see where we're going. This is how God develops the kind of person who wears these beatitudes, who lives them out. They are gifts, not commands for us to try and strive and follow. So your heart becomes less satisfied with the junk food of the world and you desire purity and devotion to Jesus. And you become a person dedicated to making peace through courage and self-sacrifice. And that, my friends, is how you often get at odds with the world. Count yourself flourishing. But the odd and awesome thing about this eighth beatitude is that Jesus almost senses our dis-ease with the idea that following him will get us in trouble. And he switches all of a sudden from the third person to the second person. Ann Moore, you were just telling me you were at a concert in the park at Elizabeth Park the other day. You're in the crowd, and Ann said that um, a friend of hers, an acquaintance, was part of the band, and Ann went forward to give a little donation, and that band member pointed her out and said, well, thank you, Ann! And all of a sudden, Anne is pointed out amongst the crowd. And Jesus, it's almost like we're the anonymous part of this crowd listening to a teacher one minute, listening to these Beatitudes, and the next he's looking at you and calling you by name, and he wants to drive home that you, Sophia, that you, Nancy, that you, Torin, you actually can count yourselves as flourishing. I'm not just talking generalizations. You. What I want to do now is just pause and ask the question, why? Why would a person who's following Jesus expect persecution? What could the problem be with someone who's humble, with someone who seeks righteousness, with someone who's merciful, with someone who's a a pure in heart and a peacemaker? Like, isn't that the kind of person we would want to hang around with? The trouble is with Jesus. Notice that he does not promise the kingdom or reward to those who are merely persecuted or slandered or insulted. The idea is not, hey guys, 
we should leave church now and go look for trouble, because when we get in trouble, woohoo, ours is the kingdom. That's not the message. Kids, you got that, right? Like, that's not the message, <laughs> okay. Um, the promise of this statement is that those who are insulted and falsely accused and slandered and persecuted for the sake of Jesus will be rewarded, right? And there's two somewhat hidden theological gems in this statement. And the first rests in this detail of the phrase, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I'm indebted to New Testament scholar Rick Watts for pointing this out. I'm just regurgitating what I read from him, and I think it's brilliant. So in many stories of the uh, Hebrew scriptures, uh, the, the prophets of God were persecuted when they spoke on behalf of God or when they lived a life that emulated the things that God wanted. So they got persecuted for representing God back to the world. They were killed for speaking and living in obedience to God. Why were they killed for that? Because they were living in a world that wasn't committed to God. And when you begin to live in a way that's godly, you're basically holding up a mirror to a bunch of people who don't want to see it and hear it because they want to do their own thing. Jesus is saying that his followers are like the prophets who came before. But notice that he is putting himself in the position of God in this phrase. Blessed are you when you're persecuted because of me. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, you could add, of God, the prophets of God before you. That's what we call in the business a high Christology. You will hear arguments about people who think, you know what, Jesus didn't think he was God. Jesus never said things. That, he, that was the church that invented all that stuff after Jesus. This is a marker of high Christology. Jesus is making a clear statement here of self-understanding, and he's making a claim to be on par with the living God. That's the sort of thing that will get a person killed. And sure enough, that's what happened to Jesus, and sure enough, Jesus proved that he wasn't delusional in claiming divinity. Why? Because he rose from the grave and then ascended in front of a bunch of people and is seated at the right hand of God, and we're still talking about him, and he's still working in our lives. Amen. Okay, now, besides just a great theological insight, that one was just for fun, um, Jesus' statement prepares us for what is to come when we actually follow him. Trouble follows Jesus. It just happens because he's always upsetting the status quo. And the trouble with Jesus is that he makes these claims about himself. He, he brings good news to the world. That's cool. But the good news is centered on a man. It's centered on him. That's a bit offensive, right? It's the centrality of Jesus over and above other gods, over and above other masters that the world can't stand. And just the minute we think, oh, we're 21st century Bellingham people, we don't have other gods. Yeah, the biggest idol in my life and probably yours is my ego. <laughs> you know, some of, these, some of these Romans and Greeks who had, you know, worshiping Artemis and all of these other gods and goddesses, they're far more religious and like faithful than we are because we put ourselves on the pedestal. 
So it's the centrality of Jesus over and above others that is offensive. It's the uniqueness of Jesus. It's the exclusivity of Jesus that is the cause of problems that follow him and follow his followers. Like, we live in a culture that literally claims to be the most tolerant culture of all time. And of course, if you dig a little bit beneath the surface, you know that that's debatable for, to be sure, right? Because the minute you don't agree with whatever somebody else's, the, the loudest voice is agreeing with, well, you're, you're canceled. So it's not, it's not really that tolerant. But that's what we say we are. But even in a world where you could be canceled, what, on social media, or you might lose your job, or you might not be able to make, you know, run for office or something, we're nowhere near. We're nowhere near being institutionally persecuted, right? Um, you know, that's not the case in many cultures around the world, in many nations around the world. Um, there are hard lines in lots of places between religious groups, even even within the same religious group, within maybe Christianity, well, this denomination or that sect, or within Islam, you know, Sunni and, and Sufi, I mean, you just play it out. There's even places where your family name can get you blacklisted from, from any doing any business in certain parts of town. So, I mean, we're talking about serious opportunity for persecution. One of the things that's interesting when we watch the Taliban taking power back in Afghanistan is they can't even guarantee the safety of women and girls on the street. They're like, you know, we kind of have to do some more training, some, what are they going to do, sensitivity training with their soldiers so that, you know, people can go outside. It, it's, it's nuts. And so there are a lot of places where it's actually life and death dangerous to follow Jesus to this exclusivity in the world. We're not in one of those places. So the worst that might happen to us is people might think, you're a little bit intolerant or antiquated or exclusive. And even that by itself, that feels horrible, right? Like, let's just, let's just, admit where we're at. We may not die for our faith or belief, but it, it still feels bad to, to, be, to be seen of that way. So my question is, I'm preaching to myself and to you, and we live here. We don't live in Afghanistan. We don't live in Iran. We don't live in North Korea or parts of China. Um, we're free to practice our faith, so what on earth does this have for us, for you and me? I guarantee if I was preaching in a context like that, my sermon would be very different. But for most of us, myself included, the danger is that we see this beatitude as a nice idea, and we preached it because Jesus said it, but we really don't need it, do we? That would be false. So, I wonder, I wonder if Peter, the apostle, kind of thought like, that's a nice beatitude. I don't really know why you're saying it, because like, I'm your disciple. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's done some pretty cool miracles already. He's gaining this crowd, and Peter's like one of his buddies. I bet you Peter's pretty excited. He's like, I'm caught up in this thing. This guy, Jesus, he took me from being a fisherman. Now I'm somebody. I'm not getting persecuted yet, and, and, and this is really cool, and so he might be hearing this statement about blessed are the persecuted, and he's like, I guess that's for them, that's for somebody else. But within a few decades, Peter would be trying to lead a church that was under intense persecution, both by Jewish religious leadership in Jerusalem and by the Roman Empire. 
And in an effort to encourage his church, Peter writes a letter, an epistle we call it, and it's 1 Peter in the Bible. It's the passage that Sophia read earlier. It was the whole letter um, from what she read. And in this letter, Peter seems to be drawing on the hope that Jesus gives them in this eighth beatitude. Peter seems to be drawing on it and fleshing it out with some practical considerations. And, and so uh, Sophia read from 1 Peter 3, 7 through 4, 19 just a few moments ago. And I want to take the rest of our time, I want to bring this to a close by just pointing out five ways that we can live out this beatitude according to Peter. And I think it will be practical for us now, even in the context that we live in. So the first thing that Peter calls the church to do, the, the persecuted church, is to pray. And I know you're like, oh, that's what churches do, they pray. You know, okay, just think about it. It is so tempting when something goes wrong in your life or when life is hard, it is so tempting to pray less, isn't it? It's tempting to get to the, the job done. It's tempting to do practical stuff. And what Peter's saying is like, Hey, church, I know that you're feeling the pressure, but what, what we need to do is to pray. But no, 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 you know, you know what we should do, Peter? We should get a strategy of how to, uh, we should pool our money and get a lawyer. That's what we should do. We should get a lawyer and try and, and show how the synagogue is mistreating us and how the empire, we need to make a case. And I know we can win that case. And Peter's saying, simmer down now. <laughs> Let's pray. Nothing's happening without the living God. See, Peter knew firsthand about the power of prayer and persecution because in the book of Acts, it tells us of this time when Peter and John healed this guy in the temple and then they were beginning to proclaim Jesus after that event and they get arrested and beaten and persecuted and when they get released from jail, by the way, arrested not for healing a guy, arrested for talking about Jesus. It's Jesus that's the trouble, dang it. <laughs> it's Jesus, allegiance to Jesus. And so they, they come back and they meet up with the rest of the church and uh, what don't they do? They don't pray, God, would you just bring the thunder down on the temple? Would you just persecute those leaders? Would you just give us revenge? You know what they do is they pray for the courage to preach the good and beautiful and true news of Jesus so that the world might change from the inside out. Because you can legislate rules and you can change policy so everyone can live in their little lanes, but when someone is transformed from the inside out, when someone realizes God is real and loves me and I have a place in his world, oh, that's life-changing. And I know that that has happened for some of you and I also know that some of you are like, it's been a long time and I feel like I'm barely holding on. And that's why we preach the gospel every week, because I need it, and you need it. Allegiance to Jesus brings trouble because it's offensive to a world that does not see Jesus as Lord. Um, yeah, so Peter and John, they pray for this boldness. They pray for courage to preach the good news so that there's transformation. So let's not get bogged down, church, with this us versus them mentality. Jesus is for all humans. Everyone you meet, he might not be for what they're for, but he's for them. He's for them, okay? Um, 
So let's be people who are committed to praying down God's blessing and the boldness to live it out in this world. Second, Peter calls the persecuted church to excel in loving each other and to loving people really, really well. He says, love covers over a multitude of offenses. Love and showing hospitality to people in the midst of persecution tends to diffuse that tension. Sharing meals together um, breaks down walls of ignorance and, and misunderstanding. It's really hard to hate someone that you share a meal with and have some conversation with. Uh, it, it at least makes it a little easier to see where they're coming from. And a lot of times that makes all the difference. False stereotypes come down and hatred is tempered and we begin to have at least a mutual respect for one another. That's what love does. That's what hospitality does. That's one of our roles as the church. Third, Peter calls on the persecuted church to use their gifts in ministry. So like if you've got the opportunity to serve someone else, he says serve as though you're serving Jesus. Or if you've got the opportunity to preach or to teach. Worship leaders are always teaching. Um, children's people are always teaching. If you, are, uh, if you have authority over anyone in your life, you're a boss or, or, or a parent or a grandparent or a community member, you're always teaching by the way that you're living. For those of you who preach or teach, do as one speaking for God. Whatever you do, consider what our words and actions reflect about Jesus. That's pretty practical. Fourth, we're almost there. Fourth is, I think Peter's saying, be cool. I do. I think he's saying, be cool. I know he doesn't say it like that, but part of preaching, part of what I am supposed to do is to bring the word into colloquial terms. And I think that if I had to translate what Peter's saying here, he's saying, be cool. Um, Peter writes, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of the glory of God rests on you, okay? Uh, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer. Yeah, don't do that. Uh, it should not be as a thief or any kind of criminal or even a meddler, okay? So see, it's basically be cool. That's what he's saying. Jesus is not saying blessed are the persecuted. He's sort of saying like, if you do the crime, you do the time. Like this is not a get out of jail free card. He is saying, blessed are those who are persecuted because of me, because of Jesus. So if you're just out there making bad choices and getting in trouble, again, teenagers take note. No, just kidding. It's not only you. You're just fun to pick on. Um, that's not cool. Don't do that. Uh, and if you're a meddler, I imagine like a hamburger guy. I don't know, like what does a meddler look like? Um, that means if you're being persecuted, as a follower of Jesus, because you just can't help making uninformed political posts um, or holding judgmental signs and trying to stir the pot or making tone-deaf statements that might be true but just tactless or inappropriate in their timing, that's not cool. <laughs> that's a meddler. Like, Jesus isn't saying, like, if you bring down persecution and being ostracized for being a jerk, like, that's not part of the deal. Um, which leads us, okay, so again, it's not 
blessed who are persecuted for shouting about your interpretation of what it means to follow Jesus. It's blessed are those who are persecuted because of Jesus himself. And that just makes me think twice about a lot of the things I say and do and my temperament. It's all in the, I would say half of it is all in the tone. A lot of things I see out there are right, but they're wrong. Like, that's not the audience. That's not the place for that argument. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? Okay, it's not cool. (laughs) So the fifth way to live into Jesus' teaching I think Peter is encouraging the church to rejoice when we get to share in the hardship of Jesus because it it builds our allegiance to him. And he's saying this with the promise that one day we are going to rejoice in the same glory that Jesus receives in the new creation. And there's this sense in Peter, an apostle who heard Jesus' original teaching in that beatitude and then lived it out in persecution, there's this great and unshakable hope that we have in Jesus. And no amount of insult or marginalization or even death itself can separate us from the love of Jesus and our future in his new creation. Jesus, thank you for this good word Thank you for good news um, that you bless and promise your kingdom even and especially when uh, we're on the receiving end of persecution or marginalization or insult when we're trying to live faithfully for you. Lord, help us. Help us to be people who pray before we speak, who trust you to deliver over our own strength. Help us to be people who are known for our love and hospitality more than our judgment. Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit, you would help each of us to live into our our talents and our gifts and the things that you created us for, and to express those things with joy and love as if doing them unto you. Lord, give us the tact of a loving person and the boldness to never waver on the truth in our hearts, God. And I pray that you would give us confidence in the future hope that we have in the new creation and the resurrection. Amen.